Amen. So I'm going to read um, the first eight verses just hopefully without a lot of commentary to just uh, put us in context again and uh, help us to move forward uh, in uh, the remainder. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Indeed, I indeed rather baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And uh, Jesus added, and other gospels added, baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. So um, we had done a detailed introduction to the book of uh, Mark last week and took apart uh, the first eight verses, uh, I think, pretty thoroughly. Um, uh, you know, that study is uh, recorded in on uh, SoundCloud uh, attached to our website. So if you have interest in looking at that introduction in those verses, please uh, take the time to... Uh, to review those. I'm going to pick up at verse 9. I'm going to give a little uh, explanation here in uh, these uh, last two verses, 7 and 8, <clears throat> where John is baptizing. He makes that statement. We talked about it. There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. There was this <clears throat> practice in the Jewish society, because uh, the livestock was in the streets and on the roadways with foot traffic, and they wore open-toed sandals. So your feet were especially filthy uh, from being under those conditions. They considered it beneath a Jew to... Uh, unfasten someone's sandals. And so if they were wealthy and had servants, they would often purposely include a Gentile uh, servant amongst their employees so that when people's sandals needed to be taken off or put on, then the Gentile would handle doing that rather than anyone that was Jewish. And uh, there was also... With that frame of mind, within the rabbinical schools where uh, students were being taught by the rabbis, 
there was a statement that whatever a rabbi asked you to do as his disciple or as his student, you were required to do unless he asked you to unfasten his sandals. So with this idea that it was so low of a job, the, the Jewish culture had this, this sort of thing about loosing the sandals. It wasn't a massive thing, but it was like a commonly understood thing amongst the people. So when John makes that statement of, I'm not even worthy of undoing his sandals, he's elevating Jesus Christ to a place that's above humanity, that, that he's so far above them that it would even be appropriate if Jesus asked me to loose his sandals, is, is what he's saying. And John is a very prominent minister. The people have a very deep respect for him. They, they, they are making that equation of Elijah, you know, John the Baptist. He's radical. He wears camel's hair. He's out in the desert. He's calling people to get right with God. You know, this is the sort of prophet we wanted. And uh, now John makes the statement of, I it wouldn't even be right. You know, I would definitely lose his sandals. So that puts Jesus in a place in everyone's mind, like, my goodness. Like, I mean, we were paying attention to Jesus, but, you know, we venerated John, and suddenly John launches Jesus to a, an elevation that they've got to pay attention to. It's it's deep and meaningful to them. <clears throat> um, so verse 9, uh, it says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, uh, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, and I, I make the point in the introduction, and I'll do it repeatedly throughout, that uh, Mark uh, uses that sort of phraseology a bunch of times, immediately, abruptly, right after that. And it's the idea of he's encapsulating the... Um, things that take place that he records as um, snapshots. He gives you this you know, immediately and abruptly and right after that so that you, you get this sort of uh, uh, you know, repetition rhythm in uh, the way it was written, especially in uh, the Greek language. So immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So a few points here. The, the prominent element is the, the Trinity. Uh, you have Jesus in the water. You have uh, the Holy Spirit descending. Others uh, tell us descending in the form of a dove, you know, and, and alighting upon him and remaining upon him. And then the voice from heaven, so you see these three aspects of God uh, relayed here. Um, I often point out there are people that struggle with the concept of the Trinity from a few different angles. Uh, you know, people from a Jewish background have it thoroughly ingrained in their mind that um, you know God is one. And so they, they have the concept that 
to say there is God the Father and then to say that there is God the Son and then to add to that God the Holy Spirit, in their mind, that's three gods. And, and uh, that is not what's being relayed at all. Uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's verse 3, where it says that Jesus is the express image of God. And I give the illustration of that you know, fairly modern toy where it has all those pins inside that plastic framework and you know the larger ones you can hold up to your face and you know press or just your hand and you you get the impression that's to, that's exactly what Hebrews is saying that God impressed himself upon his creation and Jesus is that expressed impressed image upon creation uh, it has a direct correlation to the signet ring that was worn by the more wealthy people. And the family seal was uh, engraved or impressed or stamped upon it. And they could pour you know, melted wax upon a document and place the signet upon it. And that was their family's full authority there. They're impressing their commitment to whatever's contracted upon that thing. God's impressed image upon creation of himself. That's what Jesus is, according to the scripture. Go to Genesis in creation, and there, you know, God, plural, gods, literally, Elohim, set us, says, let us make man in our image, singular. Plural gods says, let us make man in our image, singular image. Okay? Um, you know, body, soul, and spirit mentioned throughout the scripture. Um, you know, people say, oh, so, so God the Father is what? You know, spirit, uh, you know, or the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, God the Father is soul and Jesus is the flesh. Not really. Okay, um, you have to take the fact that we're a triune being and understand that, you know, expressed image, make man in our images along the idea of, you know, if you've got a big mirror in your house and you look into that mirror and there you are, that's your image. You're a reflect, that's your reflection of yourself. We are a reflection of God. So, so to imply that God is body, soul, and spirit, uh, it's way more complicated than that. Okay, we're we're body, soul, and spirit, and and we are, you know, that's the like two-dimensional reflection of that which is God, three-dimensional. Am I going too far with the whole thing? It's a, God is a triune being, and it's way beyond us. You know, I think C.S. Lewis is the one that pointed out that if you could understand God, then he wouldn't be God. It's, it's beyond you. You know, accept what the scripture is saying and let it blow your mind and move on. Right? So, so here we have Jesus, we have the Father, we have the Spirit seen and expressed in this moment. And it is an evidence of... Right to all the deniers, the Jehovah's Witnesses and otherwise that want to say, no, triune isn't God, isn't you know Jesus isn't God. And they got all these different. No, Jesus is God. 
and the Holy Spirit is God, and God the Father is God. And someday you're going to stand in front of him and go, now I really get it. Right now, we just have to embrace to whatever degree we can, accept it, and move on. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. So here, you have this statement. Now, notice that he says, uh, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's been pointed out, and I completely appreciate it, that Jesus hasn't done anything in his ministry yet. And God is already expressing, I am well pleased in him right here, right now, as he is. Uh, so many people have this mindset like, oh, someday I, I hope I get to get into the ministry. You know, I, I wish I could go to the mission field someday. I hope that I get to, you know, Jesus was a carpenter up until this point. And God the Father is saying, I'm well pleased in him right there as he is. Where, where has God got you? What are you doing in your life, with your life? That's your ministry. If God wants you doing something else, then he'll move you into that. You know, just had, uh, we have this addictions support group Bible study on Friday nights. And, uh, you know, one of the brothers uh, from the church uh, having a conversation with a group of guys, four people end up here as a result of his conversation with this group. And, you know, he's simultaneously saying, boy, I just wish I could do more in the ministry. And I'm saying, you are doing it. You know, where God has you, right, is places I'm not going to be. And you're going to be talking to and evangelizing and inviting people into the kingdom, into these settings. You know, Jesus had never added a few items to his work invoice, you know, a few more hours of labor tacked on to the end, you know, once he finished putting some doors into a house. He didn't, you know, cut a little corner here or stretch a little truth there. He had been honest. He'd been forthright. He had accomplished what he was supposed to do. In the things he was already doing, God was able to say, I'm well pleased in him. And you go, well, of course, you know, Jesus would do those things, right? We're supposed to be reflective of that. Uh, our lives, our behavior is supposed to reflect the character of Jesus. Whatever the Lord has you doing, uh, understand that that's where God wants you ministering right now, in that place in that environment, in those circumstances. I think at times, well, I won't use his name, but I, I just remember uh, a musician years ago. Um, I, I know he was well-intentioned, but writing songs for the body of Christ, and he's saying in the songs that basically if you aren't going to the mission field, you're failing. You know, that, that's what God wants us all doing. Well, I, I think that that puts a lot of undue pressure on people. You know, where God has you, that's where God wants you. And, you know, if you're constantly, you know, the, 
Right? We all say that, right? The, the, the grass is greener. If you're always looking for the, the greener grass, then you're going to miss what's right in front of you. The opportunity that the Lord has planted you in, the people around you. Right? you maybe you're, you know, you're the only person that could have possibly reached them. And you're thinking, man, if I could just get out of this place. <sighs> Open your mouth. Share with the people around you. The Lord is already well pleased with Jesus in the environment that he is at. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, implying the added danger of that environment, and the angels ministered to him. Now a few things in that couple of verses right there. Sometimes, right, we end up in spiritual circumstances that are incredibly bad to the point where we either have a strong suspicion that the devil is orchestrating our current environment and circumstances, or we even outright know this is of the devil. Yeah, well, Keep in mind that right here, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into those places. Right? We, we often think like, this is not God's will. Maybe it's exactly God's will. Okay. Now, here's a thought. John Mark is Mark, who's authoring this, and he's working with Peter, as they co-author this book, John, Mark, has had horrible failures in his ministry to the point where Paul has said, I don't want anything to do with that guy. I will not work in the ministry with that guy, right? Do we need to even mention Peter's failures, right? Now they're collaborating together to give us a book of the Bible which is extremely significant on a lot of levels. And one of the first things they start out telling us about is about the temptations that Jesus himself went through. Well, I would ask you, how do we suppose that these men know about these temptations? Jesus has to have told them, correct? Right? Well, if Jesus has been through these things, and we're talking about men like Mark and Peter. The pro you can imagine the conversation probably went like, well, you think you've got it bad. <laughs> you think your temptations were difficult. Let me, let me tell you about some temptations I've been through. Jesus himself and how I dealt with them. It's, it's really a remarkable consideration that Jesus was driven into these circumstances for the purpose of spiritual success so that he can relay to failure-prone losers how to do it right, right? Because notice, like if, if um, blasphemous, sacrilegious, if I'm Jesus, right, and the devil just shows up, I just blow him up, you know what I'm saying? Just... I use all my heavenly power to throttle him. 
And instead, what does Jesus do, right? Any of us that have studied this at length know that what Jesus does is he reaches back to that ultra-popular, incredibly powerful book of the Bible known as Deuteronomy. <laughs> right? As if reading the book of Leviticus was not like, I hate to say, drudgery enough. The repeating of Leviticus in the book of Deuteronomy could be even more tedious than Jesus. It's almost like Jesus reaches into the toolbox and says, like, I'm going to defeat the devil with this chopstick. You know what I'm saying? Just No, that's too, let's use the toothpick. He uses something that we would have disregarded. He uses the book of Deuteronomy to defend himself. Hey, what do we derive from that? One, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Because there's no way you're going to combat the appetites of your flesh unless the Holy Spirit is subduing those things. No way. Right? Do you have certain appetites that overcome you at times? Right? Well, now imagine purposely exaggerating those for 40 days. Right? Hunger. Uh, According to, I've had lengthy fasts, but I've definitely never gone 40 days. Okay. According to the doctors who promote and study fasting, 40 days is the critical cutoff point where your body goes through great processes to try and reignite the process of eating food. Because at 40 days, your body starts digesting itself in order to try and not die. Starts digesting your very heart muscle. Starts digesting your very kidneys and your very liver. It's already taking care of all of the excess fat and storage. You know, with a 40-day strict fast. And now it says, okay, the only thing here are vital organs. And it starts dismantling the body. 40 days. And Jesus uses this minor book of the Bible, in, in our opinion, very often, this minor book of the Bible, this repetitious book of the Bible to defend himself. Got to be filled with the Spirit because the appetites of the flesh are going to be overwhelming. Overwhelming. And you must learn to use the Word of God. If you're not you know, filled with the Spirit and utilizing the Word of God properly. Yeah. You guys watch YouTube and get watch fail videos? Just, I love fail videos. <clears throat> if you're not aware of it, <clears throat> there is a whole, there's a whole genre known as ninja fail. So you can check that out if you haven't checked it out. But they're the, they're the karate experts that make a big deal, show off about how much of a karate expert they are, and then they attempt the thing and just destroy themselves. You know, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. You can tell yourself, yeah, I'm going to use, I've memorized and I've got all of this, you know, weaponry, God's Word, the sword of the Spirit. I'm going to use that. And now you get into the situation and it'll be nothing but a fail. If you do it in the flesh, if you're not doing it by the power of the Spirit, if you're not doing it in obedience, submission to the Lord, 
you know, quote the scripture all you want. The devil will just turn it right back on you. If, if you aren't following the will of the Lord and doing this in a submissive way to his spirit and what he has provided. So he is driven and tempted. The wild beast, that's, as I mentioned, the added danger, right? Your own fleshly desires are overpowering and overwhelming and exaggerated in the circumstance and add to that environmental issues that are very dangerous. You know, you couldn't possibly defend yourself spiritually in your weakness and now add to it external threats, which you definitely would not be able to handle. It has to be the Lord who's watching over and protecting in moments such as that. And then, of course, the statement that the angels ministered to him. We see that a couple of times, actually, in Jesus' greatest hour. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the angels came and ministered to him. And here, as he's under this temptation, um, Billy Graham's book, simply titled Angels, is way worth your time to read because he doesn't do any great extra-biblical explanation and try to you know create circumstances that are outside god's word he simply takes all of the occasions in the word of god regarding angels and how they work and what they do and how they minister particularly to believers and when you get done reading it you're left with the great assurance of hey there's an invisible force around me all the time that is caring for and tending to and guiding and ministering especially god's gospel to me and i need to be more attentive to it i need to be more aware and responsive to what the lord is doing now here that, that description and that's an assurance for us that angels minister to us in a similar way that they did jesus verse 14 now after john was put in prison listen I want to make a point regarding COVID-19, okay? Uh, talked about it this morning. Yeah, I mean, it's a pet peeve of mine, you know, because of the current events. But th they're gearing up again to shut down churches and place restrictions upon society and take our freedoms away. And in particular, in regard to the worship of Jesus Christ, these church doors will never close again. We're going to be right here. And within that thought process, people will say harsh things about pastors who resist in that way. And they've said harsh things about churches such as ours. John the Baptist was put in prison for confronting the governor of his land over personal sin in that man's life he wasn't waiting to address uh, him uh, on issues of great political circumstances regarding the public worship or his ministry at the jordan he looked right into his life and told him that it was improper for him 
to be married to the woman that he was married to. And he ended up put in prison for that. And that woman's daughter had John put to death. And the thing that facilitated John's death was the ruler's sexual lust. It was that petty. John lost his life over it. Uh, The gathering together of the saints to worship Jesus Christ is far more critical than any of those minor items. We are, as a church, I am, as a pastor, not going to comply with any of the future mandates they have in regard to keeping us from worshiping Jesus Christ together. They, they want to do that. We'll make provision just like we did last time. People want to sit apart if they want to wear masks. They want to do any of that. That's fine. But the church doors are going to be open and we're going to welcome as many people as walk through the door to come in here and worship Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist, he's been put in prison. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, again, uh, the time is fulfilled. Remarkable statement, remarkable historical occurrence that is taking place in these moments. Certainly, it's more significant once we get to what is referred to as the triumphal entry. Right, We've talked about that many times. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel has been praying, asking the Lord about the future of Israel because they're in captivity in Babylon. And he's read in the book of Jeremiah that they're going to be released after 70 years. And he sees, oh, we're approaching that. So are we about to be released from Babylon? So he starts praying and fasting. And then you know, the angel Gabriel comes to him and tells him the entire future. Of Israel, even up to stuff going on today and what still lies ahead of us. But in that, uh, we have the statement from Gabriel to Daniel that from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah would be 173,880 days to the day. So Jesus at this point, even in here saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, is holding, he's holding things off in order to get to that 173,880 days because his popularity begins to grow and people start to call him Messiah and start to try and force him to take the throne of Israel, to become the king and to overthrow Rome. And he keeps putting the brakes on all along the way. That's not going to happen. Why? Because we're going to go according to God's plan, not people's perceptions, and people's plans. So while he's saying right here, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. We look around us right now, and people are seeing things happen, and they're saying, this is it. We're going to go. This is the hour. This is the moment. And I agree 100%. The, The time is short. The clock is ticking down. The circumstances are lining up, and we should be in the ready. But God is going to fulfill his plan in his time. 
So on both ends of things, as we do not see things happening, don't be discouraged and start joining the crowd that says it's never going to happen. Okay? It is going to happen exactly when the Lord has always intended for it to happen. We're going to see it. Whether, you know, the early Calvary Chapel days, the guys used to say, you know, I'll, I'll see you later, here, there, or in the air. You know, where, wherever the Lord conducts these things, we just need to live in the constant ready, knowing that the Lord is going to fulfill these things. Don't let your heart be discouraged on either side of that issue. What he has said he's going to fulfill. Here, the perfect fulfillment of God's timing is taking place with the coming of Jesus Christ in this time and in this environment. Then that statement, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance. We talked about it quite a bit last week. John was preaching the same thing. The term confession was used in that passage, and we talked about amalageo, which means to say the same thing. And what is implied is that when the people were coming and confessing their sins, they were saying the same thing about their sin that God said about their sin. That was the confession. Okay. And repentance was to turn the behavior around 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. The church today says they're confessing. But then you talk to them about the specifics of their sin and they're redefining it. They're not saying the same thing that the scripture does. Right? They, you know, uh, the scripture says adultery. And they say extramarital affair. Right? The scripture says drunkenness. And they say disease. Right? The scripture says, you know, theft. And they say uncontrolled compulsion. <laughs> the scripture says rebellion, stubbornness. They say obsessive compulsive disorder. We're not saying the same thing. Amalageo, confession, is to say the same thing. I was a drunkard and a drug addict for years. And that was by choice. I chose to do it. I'd love it to be something other than that. Because when it comes down to, I was choosing that. I was choosing that over my education. I was choosing it over my health. I was choosing it over my bride. I was choosing it over my family. I was choosing it over everything else in my life. I was choosing to be that selfish. And when I admitted that and just turned around, and I mean turned around, 180 degrees and just went the opposite direction, I actually created more ruckus by turning around. Right? There were a whole bunch of people that were offended by my turn. 
You know, ask them, well, would you prefer that I had just stayed? And they would say, well, of course not. But my turn showed them they had to turn, that they needed to turn their life around, that they needed to make confession about their own sins and make similar changes in their own life. And nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to be told that they're wrong. Jesus comes and he preaches repentance. That's to go the opposite direction. A lot of people think that repentance is confession. To simply say, you know, they continue to do the exact same thing unchanged. Then when you confront them about, hey, man, there's no, you said you repented. I did. I confessed to my wife what I was doing. But then you continue to do it. Right. So you didn't repent. No, I repented. I told her. No, repentance is stopping the behavior, going the exact opposite direction. And that's what needs to happen. You know, strange, right? I deal with a lot of drug addicts being in the, you know, residential discipleship program. And I have, I have spoken to three I can think of right off the top of my head drug addicts that say, I have repented, I am sober. And then moments later, they'll talk about the suboxone that they're using. To which I say, well, you're not sober. Yeah, but I'm not getting high on heroin, but you're dependent upon the suboxone. And let's face it, you are getting high. You're still getting high. You're not free. Jesus Christ will set you free. He who the Son is set free is free indeed. And I hang out with a whole bunch of former drug addicts that have been set free. That don't do any of that anymore. Oh, I'll get emails now. You know, that I've said that online. Because why? Because it's not amalageo. It's not confession. It's not saying the same thing the Lord does. And it's not an act of repentance. The full turnaround going the opposite direction. They're like, this is what Jesus comes. Time's at hand. This is, this is the fulfillment of God's plan. Repent. Right? Repent. That's the message. It's always the message. It's never anything else. Why? Because the human race is incredibly sinful. From the beginning. Incredibly sinful. And now here we are. And to get right with God still requires the same thing. Repentance. That's how we prepare. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, Keep in mind, there's been previous encounters with these men, right? Jesus has already had conversations with them. The other Gospels talk about different interactions. Now we're coming to the critical point in these men's lives. So he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fisher." fishers of men they immediately left their nets and followed him right i mean there's a lot to say about immediately leaving the nets and following jesus christ but i, I you know i'm not trying to take anything away from that 
but it is important to understand how Jesus Christ had prepared them for this moment. Right? The conversations that had taken place, the interaction that they had experienced that brought them to a ready heart so that when Jesus said, hey, time to stop doing that and time to start following me, they drop everything and they go follow Jesus Christ. I bring it up because probably in each one of our lives, there were those precursory circumstances that brought us to that critical mass moment where Jesus said, hey, stop doing that and come follow me. And there was an abruptness to, okay, I'm all done with this. And we went, right? Now, listen, if I said that and you're suddenly discouraged with, well, I did that, but then I went back and picked those things up again for a time. And so, therefore, I feel really condemned about myself. Beautiful. Glad you brought it up. Because Peter did the same thing, didn't he? Co-author of this book did that same thing. Drop the nets, follow Jesus. Screw up real bad, go back to the nets. Right? Drop the beer. Drop the drugs. Followed Jesus, screwed up real bad, went back for a while. You have another encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, you ready to put that down again and follow me? Because that's what he did with Peter, right? Peter denies him three times. What does Jesus do, right? Asks him three times, do you love me? And he restores Peter. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Go back Go back to what you know you're supposed to be doing, Peter. And that's what I would say to any of us this evening that might be dragging our knuckles and discouraged with, I am a failure. You know what? I would agree with you. You're a failure. <laughs> you know, beautiful thing is, right? Jesus is for losers. If you think yourself a loser, it, you, you're probably going to have to come to the point where you realize you are. I mean, Peter is class act loser. Just, wow. Little girl. Little girl is saying, I'm confident that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And he pronounced a curse upon himself. That's what that passage means, right? He, he, he says something to the nature of, you know, may God strike me dead if I know the man. All because a little girl is saying, I think you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, it, it's nice if you cave under some massive pressure, you know, gun to your head, and you have even a fraction of an excuse. But when you caved because of the peer pressure of a little girl, you can't really hold your head high after that, you know. And Jesus restores him. Church history tells us that very often when Peter spoke publicly, the critics would stand on the fringe of the crowd and they would either at the very beginning or they would wait right to the crescendo of Peter's message and then they would crow like a rooster. 
You're, you're right at the strongest point of your sermon. And some heckler in the back of the crowd is yelling, cock doodle doo that, That'll make you feel about an inch tall. Right, you, when that happens, you have to just sort of hang your head and say, yep, that's right. Yeah, that, that is true. Now about my message. <laughs> and you have to just plug ahead. That's the grace of Jesus Christ. Seriously, he's not looking for the awesome orator. He's not looking for the brilliant presentation. What's he looking for? Obedience. Obedience. Right? That's success. That's how you measure success is through obedience. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. And Peter writes brilliant messages to the shepherds in the body of Christ about feeding the sheep and how to do it and how to and how to stick, how to stay on the job and how to not fail. Why? Because he knows what it means to be a failure. He knows how disheartening it is. He knows how crushing the weight of failure is. Be encouraged. This message here, come and follow me. If you've put down your Bible and picked up the proverbial net again, it's okay. Put the net down. Pick the word of God up and move forward. Move forward. Let Christ love you in the process. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the sons, uh, James, the sons of Zebedee, and John, his brother. James and John, sons of thunder, they'll be called later who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. They were a successful commercial fishing venture. They've got hired employees, and they leave that. They depart. From a successful, there's, I mean, in this region, you know, to this day, there's only two industries that are prominent in this region. One is tourism. The other one is fishing. You know, fishing is still very, very prominent. They are making good money. And they put that down and they go follow Jesus Christ. This was a common thing for rabbis to call students to themselves. And it was considered a great honor when a rabbi would take note of your child, your son, and come and say to the family or say to the son, I want you to come and follow me. So for Jesus to do this is not extraordinarily out of place. The culture has a sort of understanding. It's usually done by people who've been through the schools of learning in the Jewish communities. You know, some Pharisee, some Sadducee, some scribe. Jesus is a little out of the ordinary. 
He's sort of like your Carhartt preacher, you know, got his Levi robe and just shows up and says, follow me. It's a little odd, but he's well-respected. He's highly thought of, and so they follow him in this moment. Remember that when we get to the place where Jesus is talking to the rich young rulers and others about leaving things behind, and these men right here turn and say, hey, by the way, we've left everything to come and follow you. And essentially, Jesus says, don't worry about it. You're going to be rewarded. And he even goes as far as to say, not only in eternity, but in this lifetime, you'll receive reward. So, you know, wherever you are, if you're hearing the Lord speak to you, even tonight, consider that Jesus Christ understands what it is that you might be considering giving up in order to follow him. And he will care for you. Verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. So this is, again, a fairly common practice. Synagogues are kind of an odd thing in even Israel. Uh, you had the tabernacle previous to the captivity where they went away in Babylon. It was in Babylon where they were restricted in their movement and not allowed to have the freedoms and definitely weren't able to build the tabernacle or a temple. So wherever there were 10 men who were religiously disciplined, if there were not 10 men, then they would meet at the river. That was a known thing. If you were in a community and it was coming up on Saturday, and you wanted to go to what we might describe as church. It was more than that, but okay, you know, church. They want to go to church. You would go to the like the basically the park, and you would look for oh, there's some Jews over there, and you would go over and you would meet with them. And when it came to a point where there were ten or more men who were devout to their religion, they would establish a synagogue, and that encapsulated everything that was Jewish. It was uh, town hall, it was, uh, you know, court, it was, uh, you know, church, it was the whole nine yards. And so synagogue came back from captivity with them, where they kept synagogues all around. The, the practice worked well for them, and on the high holy days, they would go to, you know, the temple uh, to honor uh, the uh, the festivals and the feasts in the process, but uh, synagogue now didn't actually have a, a pastor, or a preacher, or a rabbi. Um, they would take turns, and there was an assignment. And uh, one of the big investments was uh, they would have a copy of the Old Testament uh, uh, copied for their synagogue, and uh, it was pretty hefty cost involved. In that, and um, when you read of occasions in the scripture, particularly in the book of Acts, about the ruler of the synagogue, um, I don't mean to diminish the role or elevate the role, but essentially you're looking at the janitor. Okay, the ruler of the synagogue is the guy who had the keys, who you know unlocked the door. Um, he would uh, sometimes set out the scroll. 
and uh, the pointer, they didn't touch it uh, because the oils on your hands would uh, corrupt it and it was used by everybody. So that's why they had the wooden staves and they would roll it open and they would usually set the pointer right on the word. And it's interesting. We have the practice of picking up right where we left off in the scripture and not all of them, but the, the most common practice was they would leave the pointer right at the last word. So where they left off when they came in next week, they, they would pick up the pointer and start reading I'm saying reading. they would start reading, <laughs> for, you know, from that point forward in the scroll. Now, if you had a visiting uh, rabbi, then uh, that was uh, very often who you would give the honor to. So so somebody, uh, you know, comes in and, oh, my goodness, Rabbi so-and-so is here. Would you like to read for us today? And they would give him the honor of reading from the scroll. Jesus is you know, gaining some notoriety and shows up on this uh, particular Sabbath. And he's immediately uh, given this opportunity uh, to teach in the synagogue. So he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes uh, never, never, would give any conclusive statements at all. Their their whole approach was uh, to quote the two most prominent rabbis of their day on the subject, and sometimes there was also a common opinion regarding the passage, or a few. There might be a few, right? You get you get the 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 scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, right? So they they make up the most prominent. So you know, read the passage, you know, make the uh, explanation of, uh, you know, the most prominent rabbis uh, position, second most prominent rabbis, maybe what the the three religious organizations thought on the subject. And that was it. No, no authoritative explanation whatsoever. Um. You know, I've heard people say, you know, Calvary Chapel teaches like Jesus and that and that we teach with authority. And I, and I appreciate that and to a degree agree with it. But it's different because Jesus is the word of God, teaching the word of God. So the things that the word says about the word are devoid of opinion and absolutely accurate, right? So when Jesus shows up and reads the passage and then gives explanation, it's an absolute authority when he's done and the people are just left with their jaws hanging open like, wow, you have got to be kidding me. Calvary Chapel's, you know, a little like that in that we try to absorb and know and understand the entirety of the word. So when we preach from the word, we don't just go with the denominational opinion. We teach, try to teach what the Word of God has to say on that particular subject. And that sometimes is very extensive. Sometimes our opinions get intermingled with that. You know, we're human in the process. I appreciate Calvary Chapel for its attentiveness to the detail in God's Word. Because... For me, it is as close as we're going to come to this. 
speaking with the authority of God's word. Take the contrast. You know, if that sounds arrogant to you, I apologize. I don't mean it that way at all. I don't mean it that way at all. Take the contrast. The people who are teaching from God's word today and who are acting and teaching and behaving as though this has no authority at all. You know, the culture says, you know, that marriage is not between just one man and one woman. It can be between, you know, two women. It can be between two men. It can be between a few people. It can be between an animal and some human beings. It can be, I'm not exaggerating. This is how far we're going. And there are people that stand in the pulpit and teach that garbage. So we stand and we preach God's word with the authority of God's word. And we say, as Jesus said, no, no, no. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That was God's intention. So that's what the word of God. So here he he blows them away with this. He teaches with authority, not as the scribes. We'll read just a little bit more. And it says, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, that would disrupt your church service. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we know the whole story. Hopefully we've heard this a few times, right? But what if you're one of these people that just shows up at church? I think that the first thing to take note of is how is it that a demon-possessed man is comfortable with being in church? That's kind of telltale. The place must be devoid of the Holy Spirit normally. right? Because no demon is going to be comfortable hanging out where the Holy Spirit is in residence. So if he's gotten comfortable with showing up at synagogue every Saturday, then that kind of tells you that the whole congregation is kind of in trouble. Kind of in trouble. And when, right, Jesus shows up and preaches, it like lurches him out of his spiritual stupor. And you get this violent reaction. Now, I want you to notice something else. The cry, you can sort of understand because it pains him that God himself is in the room. But notice what he says, right? Cries out saying, leave us alone, number one. Get out of here is what he's saying. What have we to do with you? Okay, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. How did how did I suddenly get lumped in with a demon-possessed man? There's actually a great influence he's trying to bear. This demoniac is trying to gather these people unto himself. Do you hear it? What do we have to do with you? Have you ever been around somebody who says things like, yeah, well, we don't like, and you're left thinking like, when did I say that? How is it that you're speaking for me? You know, we don't like pepperoni pizza. Who said I don't like pepperoni pizza? You know what I'm saying? 
well, I don't like it, so therefore you can't like it. That's the attitude that's going on here. Pull these people into himself. As much as this sounds like a fearful reaction, this is the same type of controlling uh, behavior that the devil always does. Keep the crowd. Pull people into himself. Don't let anybody follow Jesus. So as much as it sounds like he's intimidated, he's also intimidating. Keep it in mind. Because you'll sometimes, maybe won't experience demoniacs, but you'll be around people who behave very similar to this. And I say that their attitude is demonic, whether they are demonic or not. Their behavior is very similar. Then he makes a very fearful statement. Did you come here to destroy us? Wait a minute. You know, you're going to kill us, aren't you? Whoa, wait, what? Is, it, is Jesus armed? Why, why are you saying that, you know? Fear runs through the crowd suddenly. You were all kind of content and sleepy and in awe. And wow, Jesus is something else. And now there's yelling and screaming and accusations of threat and all kinds of stuff is going on. Does any of this sound like the news? Right? That you've been watching? I submit to you, now you know what at least some of the influence is. Hell itself. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Oh, he's spitting that out. That's not, he's not saying that with reverence or awe. He, he's saying that as an accusation, right? The Holy One of God. He's not, he's not like, you know, bowing. In submission to the authority. This is a shrill, shocking moment that is just rattling a crowd that moments ago was in awe at Jesus' teaching and his authority. You're going to see similar things like this. You know, if you just look at the foundational elements of what's there, kind of stored away, you'll be in other environments and go, hey, that kind of looks familiar to something I've read and heard before the influence of hell in the environment look at verse 25 jesus rebuked him there's no politeness involved in a rebuke by the way jesus doesn't stand up with a soft voice and say excuse me i just want to explain myself so if you could just sit down and rebuke comes with gritted teeth Deepened voice, harsh reaction. Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet. Listen, that's far too polite. That's not what Jesus said. That's how they translated. Jesus stood up and said, shut up. His, his statement was that harsh. Look into the original language, compare it with English correlation, his statement was in modern vernacular, shut your mouth. Jesus rebukes him sharply and then come out of him. Outright demand. You're done in this moment. You have no more authority in this room. It's all over. Shut your mouth and come out. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, 
that's going to be really shocking at church. You know what I'm saying? It just, it's been a sleepy experience for decades. <laughs> and you show up and shouting and convulsions and wow, this is making church exciting. This experience, synagogue has taken on a whole new level. Convulsed him, cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed. Yeah, I should think so. You were stunned with the teaching, now look at the activity. So the, they questioned among themselves, saying, who is this? What new doctrine is this? Hey, guess what? This is not new doctrine in the slightest. None of this. Look at, look at the Old Testament prophets who are rebuking false prophets and saying the spirit you are of is of the devil, right? They, I mean, it was, it was different interaction, but the doctrine's no different. Nothing's new arriving in these circumstances. What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. That fame doesn't turn out to be entirely widespread acceptance. Okay? Fame grows, acceptance grows. Okay? But fame also includes what we more might describe as notoriety. Right? Amongst those that are more under the influence of hell, they are offended and they begin the process of rejecting. So you have these three phases and I'll close with this concept. You have the introduction of Jesus, you have the popularity of Jesus, and then you have the rejection of Jesus. And what we're witnessing here is we're cresting out of the introduction into the growing popularity of Jesus' ministry. Mark that for yourself because you may go through similar phases of introduction and then growing notoriety, whether it's acceptance or rejection, growing notoriety and then ultimately rejection is what we all experience, right? Why? Because they rejected our Lord. How insane is it that it comes down to Pilate saying to the crowd, now do you want the murderous thief who incited insurrection that is ultimately going to cause Rome to come here and stamp you out? Or would you prefer Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, who has done miracles amongst you for three years and provided you with wondrous things, and they say, give us the murderous thief. We want Barabbas. That's the way of the world. Jesus said, if they rejected me, don't be surprised when they reject you. They're, they're not going to embrace you. We would like to think they would, right? I'll just, I'll do it better. I'll be nicer. I'll be kinder. I'll be generous. I'll be wonderful. They'll accept me then. Really? Who could be nicer or kinder or, or more generous than Jesus, right? Takes 5,000 people out to lunch. Who does that? You know what I'm saying? Just heals people, delivers people, performs miracles, walks on water. You know, we should kill that guy. <laughs> what? 
if, if they treat Jesus that way, G Jesus is the one who said, they're going to treat you that way. If, if you don't have it in your heart that that's what the end game is, that you, you may get so disappointed in the process that you end up rejecting Jesus in order to gain acceptance of the world. So consider, consider that the end result is the world is going to hate us. We just have to be obedient. Just follow what the Lord is calling us to do. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father, uh, we are very grateful for your love and your work in our lives. And we ask that you would minister to each of us, that we would hear your voice, that we would be led of your spirit, that we would be obedient to your call, to your message, to your ministry. Use us, lead us, guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.